often in life, uh, more often than not, we wonder how God is working. And specifically, how He's working for our good and for His glory when things look like they do. Often we don't see it. We don't see, how is God working for good right now? How is He working for His glory right now? Uh, We don't understand how this thing we're going through, whether it's pain or trials or difficulties, how it can be so difficult, so painful, and God could be at work. Often we wonder, where is He at work if this is what this looks like? Uh, really, this is what it looks like for God to be present and active and, and moving? Because it seems like he's quite absent or he's not involved at all. So this morning in our passage is going to show us the greatest example of God's mysterious working. Where things seem strange. Where things seem like that doesn't add up and it almost seems like God could not be involved with that. It's going to show us the great example to show us, to teach us how we might admire God in all of his working, even when it's things we don't understand or don't agree with. Because God is always working. There's not some things that God has his hand in and other things that he's just saying, I'm out of control. We know God is sovereign over all. He is in control of all things. He's providentially working all things for the good of those who love him and for his glory. And so, when something is odd, or difficult, or review it as hard, we ought to also admire God in His working, even in the hard ways. And then we apply this worship, this admiration of God in our circumstances. So this set before us is the greatest example of a mystery that God is still at work in, so that in all the lesser things in your life, you may say, I know for a fact That God is at work and I can admire him for his work even if I don't understand it. And so here in Romans chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 7 uh, to 12. This is God's word. It says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What would be beneficial for us to do at the beginning of our time looking at this passage is to actually think about the end for a minute. We see what is mentioned in verse 12 is riches, twice. Riches. Riches from God. Riches for certain people. Riches. Something of greatest value. And so... Often when we think of people with great value or things of great value, you wonder and you're curious about how that came to be. If you know a, a multimillionaire, we'll say an ethical multimillionaire, um, let's throw out the owners of Hobby Lobby in America or Chick-fil-A, godly men who own huge corporations, multimillionaires. You would want to say, hey, how did you get there? Because 
And as they begin to tell you their journey of sacrifice and hard work and, and prayer and dependence on God, you can begin to admire them as a person and admire their character. So that if you were in it 25 years ago and you saw them living in a mobile home, you'd think, well, you're not admirable. Like, I'm not looking up to you. You live in a trailer, right? But now that you see the end, you see they're a multimillionaire and you see that that was part of what it took to get them there, you admire them for it now. You look back and say, wow, you... You did sacrifice. You did work hard. You did make wise investments. When at the time, if you were in that moment, you say, you're crazy. What are you doing? And so having hindsight is really good when you see the value in something at the end. So a, a multimillionaire, you look and you can admire their life on how they got there ethically. And we used to do the same thing with someone who's maybe gone through a great health journey, right? And, and you look at the end result and you think, how did you get there? And you admire their journey, their, their hard work and their dedication and all that it took and the cost and the time and the, the effort. And you can admire that. You look back and see, because of the result, you admire the process, even though the process is hard and sacrificial and difficult. So you look at the end and you admire the process. So here in this passage, we see something of greatest value. These riches mentioned in verse 12, which far exceed the value of health, or wealth, or anything else this world has to offer. They far exceed the value. We see these riches, and then we can say, how did it get there? Because I want to admire God for how he did it, not just the end result. And as you'll discover in this passage, how he brought about these riches is very difficult. But yet he needs to be admired for how he worked. Even though it's difficult to grasp, and it's hard to hear, and we don't fully get it. What did God do to bring about this? We want to know it so that we could admire him. So that we can admire him in this greatest example, so that in our lives, when we don't get what God is doing and it doesn't seem to add up, we can admire him then too. We want to admire him not just for the end result of what he does, but we want to admire God even in the way that he does it. How he accomplishes his purposes. And so here, it says riches in verse 12. There was riches for the world, riches for the Gentile. And we learn from verse 11 that that riches ultimately is salvation of souls. That that is what is of greatest value to any person. Is to know that they are rescued from their sinful condition and placed in the tender care of God for eternity. They're saved. That's the greatest thing of value. In all, and not just because of the person and the recipient. You understand, salvation is not just man-centered. When God saves his soul, he gets glory. So that's why God saves his soul, to glorify himself so that his name may be known. So Colossians 1 tells us about these riches in the same sense. It says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the riches? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's only hope of glory, that's seeing God face to face, of glorification, of future with God. There's only hope of that when you have Christ in you. That is the riches. That is what is worth most. And so here, when he says the world, it's available to a diverse amount of people, all types of people from all different nations, tribes, tongues, and languages, they... they, have these riches, and so do the Gentiles. 
They have the salvation. So then we must ask, well, how did, how did it get there? Verse 7 is an interesting verse because it talks about some people obtaining this. But if you read verse 7, if you're a careful Bible reader, which I hope you are, then you would read verse 7, which says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Then you would ask, what is it? What is it in this verse? The elect obtained it, and some others did not obtain it. So what did they fail to obtain? And what did some others obtain? And once you know what it is, then you can ask further questions like, why did they not obtain it? And how did they fail? And why and how did these others get it? Whatever it is. So then, understanding the context of this passage of chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's straightforward what it is. It is a right standing before God. It is eternal salvation in Christ. It is election. It is being chosen by God as an a eternal member of His family. It is this righteousness which chapter 9 talks about, and chapter 10 talks about. And all of Romans and all of the Bible talks about this righteousness that is required for you to stand before God. Unless you are holy, you will not see God. And so it's this righteousness that some failed to obtain, and some obtained it. So there's two, two types of people there. Some obtained it, and the reason they did is because they were rescued by God in grace. And some did not obtain it, and the reason... It's because they were hardened by God in justice. We're going to take those two in turn. So it says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. And so some obtained it. Who were these that obtained it, that got this thing, this righteousness that made them right before God, a good standing, forgiveness of sin, eternity with God, it How did some obtain it? A better way to actually translate that part of the verse, the elect obtained it, is in the Greek it kind of has the election obtained it. So it's not owing to a person. So if you were to title somebody elect, they obtained it like they went to a Coke machine, put in enough money, and the right product came out. That's what you could kind of take from this. That's not the... um, That's not the sense of this. It means the election obtained it. God's election, as we learned earlier in chapter 9 and here in chapter 11, what God has done obtained for them this righteousness. God did it. He rescued them. And how did He do it? We learned it right from the verse prior. It's by grace. In verse 5. So at the present time, there's this remnant chosen, elected by grace. By grace. It wasn't as though they deserved it. It wasn't as though they had earned it or they had sought it out. But they were chosen by God in grace. Nothing in them impressed God. Just His pure grace. And so therefore, they obtained this righteousness, which we know comes only through Jesus. The only way you and I can be actually righteous before God in a way that's acceptable is if we have Christ. There's no other way. You could work your entire life and try to get all the merits and all the points you want with God and try to get it in his good books, but you're never going to be called righteous in God's eyes unless you have Christ. Because then it's Christ's righteousness that's over top of you. And God looks at you and he sees righteous, it's because he sees Jesus, not because he sees you. 
And so that's this it that has been obtained by some. But then, some did not obtain it. It says, Israel, so speaking now as the nation as a general whole, the majority of Israel, and in the writing of Romans, Paul says, and even now to this day, the majority of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, he says, they didn't obtain it. The majority of them, they failed to obtain what it was seeking. They sought after righteousness. They wanted to be made right with God. They did. But they failed to obtain it. Interesting. Chapter 9 tells us about this. It says, and it tells us about the Gentiles who did obtain it. it. says, chapter 9, verse 30 to 32 says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue this righteousness, they've attained it. That is the righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they did not succeed in reaching it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The very thing that was supposed to be their righteousness, that they were supposed to trust in, that they were supposed to stand upon and lean on, they stumbled over and said, get that out of my way. I got work to do. I'm pursuing righteousness. I want to be made right before God, and I want the credit. Get that thing out of my way. It was Jesus. They stumbled over him. Therefore, they did not attain it. They didn't get what they were seeking. They failed, it says here. They failed to obtain what they were seeking. They wanted right relationship with God, but God said, it's through me. It's through Christ. It's through his death and resurrection. So that was chapter 9 tells us that. And chapter 10 says in verse 3, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. So seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they didn't obtain it. It was set before them in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says they wanted to establish their own system. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want him to get the glory because they thought he was a lunatic. So they thought, we'll establish our own system. We'll do this our own way. We'll pursue him. We're not going to submit to God's righteousness. And therefore, they have failed to obtain it. They failed to obtain this righteousness, which makes them right before God. But why did they fail? Because, remember, if God is involved in everything, if God is providentially working, if he's sovereignly ruling over all things, and allowing and disallowing you and I to make decisions every day, God's in charge, right? So then you ask, well, why did the majority of Israel at this time reject Jesus? Why did they do it? And the end of verse 7 tells us, the rest were hardened. They were hardened. So they were hardened, how? Or by what? They were hardened by God in justice. They were hardened by God. That makes us uncomfortable. That's one of those things where we see the end in verse 12. We think, hallelujah, amen, I agree. And then we see the way that God brings it about. And we say, I don't think so. I don't think so. Some may accuse a reading of this verse where it says the rest were hardened as you read it wrong. That must be translated wrong. There's no way that means that God hardened these people. 
It can't mean that. That God played a part in their hardening? No way. Not my God. But that's why verses 8, 9, and 10 are there. To provide further evidence that yes, in fact, it was God. It wasn't just accidental. It wasn't just God was not involved. It wasn't as though this was their thing and God had no say. He brings in, uh, as he he should, as evidence, he brings in the law, so Deuteronomy, the prophets, he quotes Isaiah, and the Psalms. So he's quoting, like, the capsulation of the whole Old Testament, Paul's bringing forth as evidence. So the verse that he quotes here in verse 8 is a mix of Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29. It says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. God gave them eyes that would not see. God gave them ears that would not hear down to this very day. God gave. It's not a new concept. Paul didn't just make this up and say, well, I believe in God's sovereign rule and so he must have done this. No, it's been that way. And it was predicted of that. That God gave them the spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. And then he quotes David from Psalm uh, 69. And he says, Let their table become a snare and a trap. Verse 9 here it says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is God at work. This is God's doing. John MacArthur says, The elect receive mercy, for they are not punished for their sins they deserve. But the non-elect receive justice, for they are rightly condemned for their sins they deserve. On neither ground can God be charged with unrighteousness, because all are guilty, and because he is not obligated to show grace to any. True. God is not obligated to show grace to any. Let's always remember that, especially when we consider hard things like this. Like, do we think God's obligated to be kind to them? Because they are sinners and rebels against God. So why would God be obligated to show them any more grace than others? And he's not. He's not obligated. God is not unrighteous. And remember, that's what the book of Romans is about, is the righteousness of God. Chapter 1 tells us this is the gospel of God, and it's all about His righteousness. God is always right in all that he does, in how he saves people. He doesn't save all. You and I know that. You have loved ones who have gone, who have not trusted the Lord. Did God make a mistake? No, God is so gracious. And that ought to, when we think about loved ones who don't know the Lord, rather than stir up anger and questions at God, it ought to stir up worship like there's nothing in me, God. And you, you know that. And you know that looking in the mirror. There's nothing in me that would deserve grace, that would deserve your love on me. Why me? That's what it ought to stir up when we think about those who are hardened, those whom God has not chosen to have mercy on. People would cry, you know what? My God would never do that. My God would never do that. He would never harden people. He would never play a part in people... Um, being punished for their sin. My God would never do that, some people say. They say, well, Jesus is not like that. Jesus isn't about having some people hardened. That's not Jesus. Don't tell me this is the same God. 
until you read the Gospels carefully. In Matthew chapter 11, this is Jesus praying and thanking God. Listen carefully. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things. You have done that. It wasn't as though uh, it was accidental or you didn't play a part. No, no, you hid them from these certain people. Jesus thanked the Father for doing that. And he said, that was your gracious will. Your gracious will. That was your compassionate will. That was your kind will to do such a thing. It's amazing. For people who say, my God would never do that, they don't know Jesus or the Father. And they want to just see the means and wonder about the end. It says the end of chapter of verse 7, says, the rest were hardened. Which also parallels a verse in chapter 9. It says, chapter 9, verses 18 to 21, says, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Of course he has the right. God has the right. And so when, even when Paul comes to this hard doctrine, this hard teaching, he says, we just got to stand before God and say, who am I to even question you? Who am I? But instead, I ought to admire you and adore you because you're doing something and it's purposeful. It's not as though this is without purpose and it's just to, uh, to sneer at certain people. God has a purpose for this. So what are the three reasons and the three outcomes of why he chooses to do this difficult thing? The means of how he gets to these beautiful riches to show his power, to shine his glory, and to share his riches. To show his power, to shine his glory, and to share his riches. First, to show his power. In chapter 9, he says to Pharaoh, because you read Genesis and it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Right? And so you read, and he says in chapter 9, verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I have raised you up. God says, I've done this. I have raised you specifically, Pharaoh, and I've hardened your heart, and I've caused all of this to happen. God did it. Why? So that I might show my power in you. And so that my name might be proclaimed. In all the earth. God's saying, I'm in control. I'm going to show my power. And I want my name to be proclaimed in all the earth. So that goes to the second thing. Not just show his power, but shine his glory. Chapter 9, verse 23 says, In order to make known the riches of his glory. For the vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. It was to make known the riches of his glory. To shine forth his glory. His renown, his name spread in all the earth. And we talked a while ago about why that's not selfish of God and why that is the best thing for mankind to have, is to to see and behold the glory of God and for the fame of His name to make spread among all the earth. That's the greatest need that we have because the name of God is the, the only name that saves, right? It's Jesus. It's by the power of Christ. And so when He's shining His glory... 
It's out of love and compassion. When He's showing His power, it's to humble sinners that they might come before the holy God and tremble at His name and tremble at His words so that they may submit to Him. Show His power to shine His glory and to share His riches. Verse 12 says, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Understand that the riches that come to the world, the riches that come to the Gentiles, was through the trespass, was through the the rebellion and the disobedience of this majority people Israel. These people who God had hardened. He had given them a hard heart, eyes that could not see Jesus, so they would stumble over Jesus. He's saying, that's unfair to those people. But why did God do it? To show His power, to shine His glory, and to share His riches. To share His riches where and with whom? The world. And you and I. If God had not done this thing, you and I would not belong to Him. It's amazing. We admire Him for His ways. He's seeing the end. It's not just where we admire God, we admire the cause as well. Verse 11 says, so did I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Like, why did he cause them to stumble? Was it for them to fall and and to be cut off from him for eternity and forever? Is he just going to cut off his promised people forever? Why did he do it? To make them fall? He says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Salvation has come because of what he has done in these Israelites. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. And, amazingly, while he is doing that, saving the Gentiles in this era of you and I getting, uh, getting Christ, he's also making Israel jealous. It says in verse 11, so to make Israel jealous. So there's going to be some ethnic Jews who see it and behold it and say, that's my God. And they long for God. And they're going to come to God through a relationship with Jesus. And so, He will save some. Even as He is saving the Gentiles. And so, it's amazing the purpose of God. Did He cause them to stumble so that they might fall and be cut off? Like, does He not care for them anymore? No. No. Instead, through their sinfulness, their rebellion, He's saving Gentiles. And while He's saving Gentiles, some Jews are getting jealous and they're turning to God in Christ. He's so merciful in every way. And it's an interesting phrase. What does it mean that through their trespass, salvation is coming to the Gentiles? Does it mean like, well, if I sin, salvation is going to come through that sinfulness to someone else? No, it's because of their rebellion and their sinfulness and their hatred for Jesus that the gospel was spread to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13 tells us of Paul's missionary journey when it says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And listen what happened. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside, and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold... We are turning to the Gentiles. So, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Because of the rebellion of the Jews, because of the pushback of the Jews, God used that to go, all right, enough is enough. The nations are now going to hear. So God used that rebellion, used their, their stumbling, used their hardness to save the nations, including you and I. It's amazing. Salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were standing there. When Paul and Barnabas said this, the Gentiles rejoiced and they glorified the word of the Lord. Right? Isn't that the goal? To glorify Him, to rejoice in Him. And as many as appointed, I love how that verse ends, as many as were appointed to eternal life, another way in Romans 11 languages, as many as were elected, those who were elected, they believed. So those who were standing there, who, who now God has chosen, they, they heard the gospel, they said, Amen. What a beautiful passage, Acts chapter 13. Read it later today and just be in awe at how the rebellion of the Jews meant salvation for the Gentiles. God's ways are mysterious. So here in chapter 11, verse 11, it says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? The answer is no. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion mean? Riches, remember. The thing of greatest value is salvation. You love the parables where it says the kingdom of heaven is like. Think about that treasure that that guy discovered in the field, right? He sold everything he had to go and to buy that field so he could have that treasure. It is of greatest value. This is the riches for the Gentiles. But the verse ends in a very interesting way. It doesn't end without hope for Israel. It doesn't end without hope for the Jews. Because it says, now if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, then how much more will their full inclusion mean? Something's coming. Something called full inclusion. Where God is again going to open up the gates of grace towards Israel once again and bring in a flood of Jews. And then their full inclusion, it means even greater riches and greater blessing. The joy of His people complete. We admire God in all of His ways. In all of how He works. Recognizing it is often mysterious. It's often hard and things that we do not understand. We recognize He does it to show His power, to shine His glory, and to share His riches. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are perfect, Scripture tells us. So this truth applies to our greatest need, salvation, so that we might admire Him in in how He works that out. Because often you know, even in your own personal salvation story, if God has so rescued you through the blood of Christ, you've come to recognize Him, confess Him, believe in Him, God used some circumstances to get you there. Right? God used some difficulty or someone in your life. Most times, 
We come to God not through a bliss and mountaintop experiences and all has been well and all has been good and oh yeah, I'm just up here and I saw Jesus. It's normally we're in a real valley and God shows us the mire we're in, shows us the desperate situation we're in. He shows us the hellfire at our face and he rescues us. So you wonder, at the moment you think, why did God do this thing to me? Why did God do this to me? And then you realize the end. To show his power, to, sh- to shine his glory, and to share his riches. So it applies to our greatest need of salvation and in and through all our daily ins and outs. God is working in the same way. In ways that are mysterious, that we do not understand, and we don't think God's involved. But he is. He's, he is, and he is at work, and he has not forgotten you. And so when you can admire him in a difficult passage like Romans 11, and we know Paul does, right? Paul gets to the end of this chapter, and he just bursts out in praise and thanksgiving, saying, I don't understand God's ways. I don't get it. And I can't judge the way he operates, but I can praise him for it. When you get to that point where you can just praise this God for who he were, how he works and who he is, even though you don't understand then you can do that in the big things and you can do it in little things. When something goes wrong in your day, you wonder, like, where is God? Is he even here? Does he even care that this went wrong or that went wrong? And you begin to say, wow, like, he works in mysterious ways and sometimes in big ways and in hard ways to save souls. What is he doing just to receive glory in this moment? You know, how did he cause this to happen? And you admire him for those things. You begin to see your day through a different light. God has done this in a big thing, the greatest thing, salvation of a soul, and he's doing it in little things too. So you admire God, not just for the end of when he he gets you through a hard time, but you admire him for the hard time. Can you do that? And that's why hard passages like this are are preserved for us, that we might see God is mysterious and he is good. So we admire him in all things, in all ways, so that he shows us his power, shares with us his glory, and shares with us his riches. To him be the glory forever. Let's pray. God, you are all wise. Not anyone or anything can inform you of something you do not know, of a way that you do not understand. You're perfect in your wisdom. It is without end. So God, we trust you. We trust you. Even though day in and day out there are things that we don't understand are happening in us, in our lives. Difficulties we face in our families. Trials we face at work or with friends. God, you're there. You're not absent. You are working. All things for the good of those who love you and for your glory. You're sanctifying us through them. You are causing us to lean heavy upon you. You're causing us to see how you love us and how you're compassionate to us. God, would you help us to surrender our hearts and submit our hearts to this truth that you are good. You're good all the time. And God, we just want to glorify you. And we need your help to do that. Because there are many difficult days where we just, we even forget about you because we feel like you're so absent. So God, would you please bring to mind that you are still working. and Bring to mind and stir up in us a worship that would resound not just in the great times, not just when we see the end and the victory, but even in the valley that we would praise you. 
You deserve it from us, O God. We pray it for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.